0: An exciting week this week. We got Super Bowl Sunday. Who's excited about that? Who doesn't give a rip? You know, OK, uh, wow, man. It's way worse than first. OK. All right, that's, that's good. Valentine's Day, who gives a rip on that one? Is that better? Don't for, forget for, guys, heads up. Don't forget that. And uh, yeah, cool stuff. And we are continuing in our John series, and actually, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And has one of my favorite characters in the New Testament in John 9 is where we're at. So we've been going through the book of John. Why? Because John, as one of the four gospel writers or one of the four men who are eyewitnesses or heard from eyewitnesses that lived during the first century are recording the events of life of Jesus. John was one of the disciples, an eyewitness from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, All the way through, he was there at the crucifixion and then was with Jesus after the resurrection. I mean, he saw it all. And so he's got this unique perspective. He writes later than the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And because of that, he includes things that weren't included by the other writers. So it's great stuff. Last week... Uh, We left off with chapter 8, and we talked about how Jesus had been in Jerusalem earlier, Passover. He left, he went to Galilee, then he came back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about that, how during that, one of the things he said was, I am the light. And he says the same thing this time, but he shows it in a unique way as we focus on John chapter 9. If you want to follow along with one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you, it's page 1070. 1070. Uh, Turn there if you'd like or follow on your device or however you want to do that. What we're going to see is another healing by Jesus, but more than that, before we get to that, Jesus is going to teach his disciples on, on the whole why question of suffering, and then he'll open blind Eyes. And so the first thing it opens with is the, the whole problem of pain, disease, sickness, suffering. John 9, 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And so this is a theological question, real specific we, in our culture, people are asking the same basic theological question all the time. Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? If God loves us, why does God allow this to happen? This is just a a version of that. And so the disciples have been taught, like most Jews in the first century, that there's this general principle, which is from the Old Testament, their Bible at the time, that Suffering is a result of sin, and that's true in a general way. Suffering is a result, ultimately, of the fall. That's when sin was introduced into the world. Genesis chapter 3, we've all inherited that sin. That's where disease, sickness, um, death, all that came from when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden. It introduced all that to the world and to humanity. And so in a general way, we can say, yeah, all suffering is a result of sin. But the disciples and Jewish people of the first century took it one step further than that. They would say that all suffering is always a result of personal sin. And now the Bible teaches us that suffering can be the result of personal sin, But it's not always cause and effect that way. And so, but they took it as that's always the way it is. And so because they they looked at it, because the disciples and the Jewish people in general in the first century went beyond biblical truth to say that suffering was always a result of personal sin, that that caused an issue. So that's what has come up. And so they ask a question. And when they ask the question, They're expecting one of two answers because it has to be the cause of personal sin. Then their question is simply, who sinned? The parents of this man who was born blind? Or did the man sin himself, which then he would have had to sin either in utero or that God knew he was gonna sin in the future? And so they're asking, which was it, one or the other? And they're expecting one of two responses. In, in the answer, but here Jesus takes this opportunity to correct their theology, and we see that in the next verse, verse three. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why was he born blind, Jesus says? No, it's not because of personal sin. It's so that the works of God could be displayed in him. And so we see how that kind of plays out. But Jesus is saying something that I think a lot of times we miss. Why is there suffering? Well, so that always gives opportunity for the works of God to be displayed. The power of God in our life. And that can be displayed with or without a, physically, a physical healing. That could be displayed just by suffering, pain, pain, loss in our life, the way we respond to that as believers can show the power of God and just in how we handle it. I see that here at Grace all the time. Pain, let me say it another way, and suffering and loss gives every believer an opportunity to display the power of God. Because people look at you to see how you handle that and they'll either see you kind of falling apart or whatever or they'll see the power of God in your life. And, and, and one other thing, and this is whether you're healed or not. This, the point is, if we're not healed, we can display the power of God. And by the way, every believer, every believer will eventually be healed of any physical issue they have. I mean, sooner or later, that's what's gonna happen in eternity, it's only a matter of time. So Jesus heals, verse four. Here's what he says before he does that, though. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So here Jesus is just saying that his earthly ministry is limited. He's the light of the world, he's said that twice. And while he's on earth, the light shines the most brightly. But he's saying a time's coming when it won't shine as bright because I'm not going to be here and my time of ministry is limited. So when he had said that, verse 6, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spit and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated "sent." And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. What's interesting about this is Jesus is walking with his disciples. They see a guy who's probably sitting by the side of the road or the entrance to the temple or somewhere. He's begging because he's blind in the first century. He didn't have a lot of options there. And uh, and so he's begging. and But he's not as far as we know, not asking to be healed, nor does he know, really seem to know anything about Jesus, but Jesus uses him as an object lesson. They ask a theological question, Jesus corrects their theology, and then while he's at it, he heals this man. He probably tells the man, stand up, and and this guy's blind, doesn't seem to really know who Jesus was, but heard his name, and then he, so he stands up, he's blind, and then he hears this, I did that in first service and kind of got away from me, so you're safe, though. But, you know, he's, all, all he hears is spit, and then all of a sudden, he feels some mud being put on his eyes. You know, and I don't know what he's thinking when he's hearing this spit, like, what's happening now? But then Jesus tells him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. We know they're not there at the pool, so we don't know how far that is. But the guy right away goes. Jesus doesn't promising that he's going to be healed, doesn't say he's going to be healed, just says, go wash. And the guy, of course, he needs to wash at that point, right? So he goes and he washes and then he comes back seeing. And that's the way Jesus' miracles always are. They're immediate, they're dramatic, they're obvious, they're complete. Boom, right there. And so this healing when Jesus does this is just yet another Sign, a miracle that points to something, a sign that he's the Messiah. Because he's doing what the Messiah is supposed to do according to the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 35, 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. And this is happening right in Jerusalem, kind of in front of a lot of people. Now, and we're kind of stunned at this, but we wonder, how did most of the Jewish people miss that this is the Messiah? you know how or even when they were celebrating that he was the Messiah at the triumphal entry? How'd the crowds turn against him? how's this happening? And that happens because of spiritual blindness and by the way, spiritual blindness always brings division when it comes and rejection really always brings rejection of Christ. And if somebody does believe division in their relationship. And so then the rest of this event, as it's documented for us, we see these different reactions of the different groups. So first of all, and there's different reactions to Jesus today. We see this playing out. Same thing, first century, first group is the neighbors and their reaction is sort of confusion but also division. They're kind of arguing with each other, a little debate. We'll we'll pick it up in verse eight. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. And so they were saying to him, well, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I I don't know. So something miraculous has happened. He washes. He comes back seeing Jesus is off the scene now. He's not there anymore. And they know this is something that only God can do. So the neighbors, some are saying, wow, this is the guy, and others are saying, No, it just looks exactly like him, but it can't be the guy because this guy can see. And so they decide, well, obviously, this is a God thing. And so they take the man to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to get their take, because this is seems like an obvious miracle to God to them. So they go to the Pharisees and they have a different reaction. And theirs was typically hostility toward Jesus. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, well, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So we've talked about this a little bit before. The Pharisees were experts in the law. They had the Old Testament as their Bible, just like we do today. And the first five books of the Old Testament was the Pentateuch. That was the formal part of the law. The Pharisees were experts in that. In the law, for example, part of the Ten Commandments is, keep the Sabbath, keep one day in seven where you don't do your normal routine of work, change it up, focus on God, come to church, you know, that kind of a thing. So uh, they're, they're looking at that. But then that's the law. But then through the centuries, there was an oral tradition that went along with the law with a bunch of rules on how to keep the law. So the law said one thing, hey, do this. But then Over hundreds and hundreds of years, they came up with all kinds of oral tradition that they eventually wrote down, but a whole bunch of stuff that they piled on top of the law, all these rules to make sure we're following the law. And that wasn't the Bible. That was just their oral tradition. And so Jesus, we wonder, you know, why did he even spit on the ground and make clay? He didn't have to do that. But I think he did it just to challenge their thinking on the Sabbath. Because healing, the oral law said, you can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't knead together dough, and so making mud is a little bit like that. Can't do that on the Sabbath. So he's breaking all these oral traditions. He's not actually breaking the law. So there's a division among the Pharisees, the ones who are focused on the miracle. how This guy can see how'd that happen. Well, they're like, wow, we need to stop and check this out. But the majority of the Pharisees are going, whoa, 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 this happened on a Sabbath day. That broke the tradition of the law. He cannot be a good guy. He can't do a miracle from God while he's sinning against God at the same time. That's impossible. So there's this friction between them. But really what they should have been seeing is that this is a huge sign of the Messiah because it, it fulfilled Not only, I read earlier from 35.5, but Psalm 146.8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. It's a sign that this is the Messiah. And Jesus basically said the same thing. If you'll remember, early in Jesus' ministry, he was in, back where he grew up, in the town of Nazareth, and he went to synagogue and while he was in the synagogue he was asked he stood up to read which was kind of his custom and they gave him the book the scroll of isaiah and then he went to isaiah he opened up a part that was a prophecy concerning the messiah and he basically said hey i'm here and i'm the messiah and one of the things i'll be doing is giving sight to the blind i mean he said that of himself it wasn't all that well received and and why because the Pharisees didn't want to see it. They didn't want to see it. They, they, they do the same thing to Jesus that people do with Jesus today. They thought they have the religious thing all figured out through the law, which was right, and their traditions, which weren't always right. But they were heavy on the, the tradition that was wrong and went beyond the law. And so they were so confident that they were like, okay, this guy stepped out of our traditions. He doesn't fit our God box. And so he can't be from God, even though he's doing a miracle. That's exactly what people do today. Here's what people do. They'll hear about Jesus. And there's a lot of things about Jesus they like. Jesus was loving. Jesus hung out with sinners. You know, Jesus did all these things things that we like as a culture. But then there's other things that Jesus did that they didn't like. He condemned sin. He talked about hell. He said that we were guilty. He said he was the only way to heaven. A bunch of stuff that people in our culture today, they hate it. And so because Jesus doesn't fit in their mental little God box, they they either reject him outright or they keep him at an arm's distance. Yeah, I'm okay with Jesus, but I don't want to know too much about him. That's how they react. And they're willfully blind to his claims. And so then we also see not only the reaction of the neighbors and the reaction of the Pharisees, but then there's the reaction of the man's parents. So the man's parents are not as courageous as the blind man, we're going to find out. And what happens there is they bow down to cultural pressure to conform to, to the culture of the day. And, and, and they do, as they do that, they sort of just put it all back on their son. You know, maybe they know he can handle himself because he can, but verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, and he said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been, born, that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, Hey, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And the the text continues, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So the parents are put on the spot. They affirm their son's identity. They affirm that he was born blind, but then they know that there's this tension that this guy, Jesus, healed him. And they also know the religious leaders don't like Jesus and have already agreed amongst themselves that if anybody says Jesus is the Messiah, they're out of the synagogue. Out of the synagogue was a big deal in the first century. You know, that meant you, were, you lived like an outcast among your own culture, your own people. And so they weren't willing to risk that. So they just say, Talk to him, you know, about the how and the why and the who. You just talk to him. He's old enough to speak for himself. And they're, because they're worried they'll be excommunicated, they bow down to the pressure of their culture. And of course, people do that today. All these ways. Whether people are like the neighbors, hey, there's some things about Jesus that, wow, that's cool. And, man, he he can do amazing things, and I have a good view of Jesus. But then ultimately it's like, hey, we'll just let the religious leaders figure this all out because this is kind of beyond me, and, you know, I'm happy to just, without considering all the claims, I'm happy to just turn this over to someone else to figure out so I don't have to. A bunch of people in our church are like that. Other people are just naturally hostile because the more they find out about Jesus, they don't like everything he represents. doesn't fit in their box, so they reject him. They're hostile toward him. How can Jesus say he's the only way? Stuff like that. Or Jesus probably never said that. Well, yeah, he did. You know. Or it's like the parents. And the parents are like, hey, we know this has happened. This is our son. We know this is true. We know this is real. But... We don't want to go against our culture. It's, we want to stay comfortable. We want to, we want to stay friends with everybody. We don't want to be ostracized. So we're just going to go with the flow of the culture. That's how people respond today. But others believe. That's what happened to the blind man. We see his reaction all through this event that his spiritual sight keeps increasing all through what's happened here. Think about this guy. He didn't ask to be healed, as far as we know. Jesus spits, makes mud, sticks his eyes, says, go wash. He go, we don't know how far that is, but it wasn't close. He goes and washes, comes back seeing, but there's no Jesus anymore. He's gone. And so then he's left there, to sort of defend himself in the center of this increasing controversy with the religious leaders. So now, all the attention's on him, and he he's in this kind of debate. And he's forced into this debate with the Pharisees about their rules and their oral traditions and his obvious healing, and it gets a little uncomfortable. And as the man debates, we'll see that his own logical conclusions about what happens you know, he, because of his own logical conclusions, he's confronted with, oh yeah, the identity of Jesus. Yeah, he has to be from God. This must be the Messiah. We can see that kind of happening to him as this interaction continues. And, uh, and, and he gets kind of put out with the religious leaders. He even gets sarcastic with the religious leaders. And, and he sort of realizes that the deck is stacked, that they're not just looking for truth. They're just looking for opportunities to accuse Jesus, that you know, they're, just, they're just determined to discredit him. And so he's been asked, who did this? Remember, he started off saying the man, Jesus. It's not Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Galilee. It doesn't seem like he knows much about it. He just caught his name, the man, Jesus. That's all, all I got. Where is he? Don't know. And then, well, who do you think he is? he's got to be a prophet. Who can open eyes? I mean, he's got to be something. And then as they interrogate him the second time, it continues. Verse 24. So a second time, they called the man who had been healed and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Then he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And, and here now they're giving away the farm. They're recognizing, okay, this happened. How did he do it? Still looking to discredit him, verse 27. And he answered them, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? And they then reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. And now the blind man becomes the teacher, verse 30. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing that you don't know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if someone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. And since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he starts slamming them with logic. Well, how did this happen? He, He can't be against God. Only God could do this, and God used this man. It's a logic that they can't refute theologically. And this is exactly what happens in our culture today. Oh, I can't win the argument. So what will I do? Then I start calling you names. That's a, so they resort to a. They can't win theologically. They can't win logically. So now it's a personal attack on him. Verse 34. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us and so they put him out, meaning they put him out of the synagogue. He's executed. He's persecuted. But we see the man's faith continues to increase. Jesus offers spiritual insight to all of us, but he is following Jesus in all this. So he stands up to the religious leaders, even though he knows that he you know, needs to back off if he doesn't want to be ostracized from his community. So he's out. And that means he's separated from people. People aren't supposed to talk to him or anything else. And then Jesus comes and finds him after hearing what happened. And so he's kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus finds him. And Jesus asks a very direct question. He says in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Son of Man is a term for the Messiah that is in the Old Testament in Daniel. Do you believe in the Messiah? The question demanded a personal decision, even in the face of opposition, because we're going to find out there are people standing around, kind of a private conversation, but people are listening in. And not everybody friendly. Verse 36. He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he's the one who's talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So here's a man showing the works of God. He's been cured of blindness from birth. It's a miracle, an astounding miracle, the likes of which nobody's seen before. But then there's a second miracle in his life that's even greater than the first because as great as it is to be able to see in this man's life for the next maybe 40 years, maybe if he lived to be really old, next 50 years, But he's putting his trust in the one who can give him eternal life. It's way better. This is the only time in the whole book of John where somebody worships Jesus before the resurrection. The only time that happened. He probably, you know, we we don't know that that he understood that Jesus was God at this point but he certainly understood that Jesus was the messiah he certainly understood that he was trusting Jesus he was all in for Jesus because when he says this phrase i believe he's talking more he's referring to more than just intellectual belief he's talking about a trust that's inherent within that, i believe and the works of god is shown twice in his life I think a lot of times we think, well, it'd be easy to believe if I saw a miracle or if God healed me or just something that's you know supernatural happened in my life. But all through the Bible, we see that's not the case. Remember earlier, a few weeks ago, we talked about another man, kind of similar. Jesus was in Jerusalem. He comes up to a man he initiates, just like with the blind man. This guy is lame. He's crippled. He's uh, paralyzed, and he's at the pool of Asada, and he's there waiting to get in. When the water, you know, he's just waiting to, for the chance he could be healed, some superstition that they believed in in that day. And Jesus comes up and says, Do you want to be healed? And the guy, he, he does, but he kind of fumbles with his answer. Well, here's why this isn't happening. And Jesus says, Pick up your mat and walk. And he does. And if you remember the story, as he's walking, goes into the temple, which is this pool, Bethesda, he's just outside of the temple. And so he's hearing all the stuff in the temple. He finally goes in and checks it out. Well, when he does that, Pharisees stop him and say, hey, this is a Sabbath. What are you doing carrying your mat? It's against our rules, our man-made tradition on keeping the Sabbath. And remember what the guy says. He goes, hey, well, it's not my fault It's the guy who healed me fault. Well, who's he? I don't know. You don't even know his name. It's not my fault. It's him. And same thing. Later, Jesus finds the guy. And then something's going on there that we don't know. Jesus tells the man, be careful. If you keep on sinning, something worse is going to happen to you. Well, we don't know what was going on there exactly, but... Jesus knows he's doing something sinning, maybe just his attitude toward Jesus. I don't know. But then after that happens, the man learns Jesus' name, and what's the first thing he does is he goes to the religious leaders and says, hey, the man you're looking for, his name's Jesus, and he's right over there. Two men, kind of similar situations, both received a miracle. One is antagonistic toward God. One believes. That's what the Bible's telling us. That's not the only story like that. We keep thinking, hey, if there's just more evidence, I would believe. I think God's given you enough evidence already. Look around. Creation, life. Doesn't happen by accident. We see the courage. Here, here's the problem. Ultimately, most people reject Christ. It's what the Bible teaches us. It's what we see around us every day. Most people reject Christ. And the most important thing that can happen in your life is for us to see the light, to have spiritual sight, recognize our sin, and come to Christ. And it's like a battle all the time around us. So some of you are, again, who, who's planning on watching the Super Bowl? Even if you don't like it, who's what? Okay. If you're watching, because they're not your team, I know. Well, this year, so I was just reading an article. In the first half of the Super Bowl, there's going to be a 30-minute ad. and the second half, a one-minute ad on the ad, the deal that says, He Gets Us. How many of you have seen the He Gets Us? So the He Gets Us campaign is a, a very well-done campaign to sort of engage people with Jesus. It's a culturally relevant way to engage people with Jesus. Basically, a campaign that says, hey, you're poor. Yeah, so is Jesus. He gets that. Hey, are you a refugee? Hey, so was Jesus. Remember, he had to flee to Egypt when he was a baby. You know, Jesus understands. Jesus walked this planet. He understands you. He gets you. And they do a great job of that. And it's really kind of, they present that in a cultural way. But there's something else. And that's that's the easy part of talking to our culture. I'm not slamming them or anything. I'm just saying... That's the easier part. That's the Jesus, he knows you, he gets you, he loves you. And that's true. What our culture doesn't want to hear is that we have sinned against God. And we are destined for eternal separation from God. And the only thing that can save us from that is Jesus and his gruesome, bloody crucifixion outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That's the only thing that can save us is Jesus. Nobody else can save us. No other religion. It's only Jesus. That's what our culture doesn't want to hear. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that with a campaign like that, maybe it'll cause people to to rethink Jesus and, and walk into a church, will they preach or they will preach the gospel? And part of the gospel is that we've sinned against God. And, and here's the deal what I fear the most, I've said this before to a lot of you is that as we have a lot of people coming, you know, our attendance has been strong. We're going through the book of John. But all this should drive you to a decision, which is to trust Christ with your salvation, realizing you have no hope without him. That's the most important decision you'll ever make. It's not enough to like Jesus. It's not enough to identify with Jesus. It's not enough to feel really good about how Jesus loves you and knows you. That's all. Good, that's not enough for salvation. Just like these peoples are reacting. It's not enough for the neighbors to be like, yeah, this is amazing, that's cool, yeah. Hey, you guys figure this out. I got other things to do. Or the Pharisees, well, you know, I'm, I like a lot of things Jesus, but, he, but everything he says doesn't fit in my box, so I reject him. Or I just say, well, I don't think he really said that, but he did. And so you're rejecting him. Or, or the parents are saying, you know, if I go with Jesus, that's going to disrupt my whole social position here. I mean, that's going to make it awkward for my family, for the people I know, people at work. Right, you're rejecting him. Just know that. We see this man progress. Man named Jesus. Must be a prophet. It's got to be from God. Lord, I believe. And my fear is that some of you haven't progressed all the way yet. I don't know. It's just my fear because it's the biggest decision, most important decision you'll ever make. And so I asked Luke to have everybody fill out a card because once in a while I think we need to stop and reflect and make sure we get this right. And so I don't want to stick you in a category, but what I want you to do is I want you to self-identify. For your good, it will help us too, but mainly this is for you. To self identify where you're at with God. So, if you have the card, I'd like you to flip over to the blue side. We, we do this once in a while if you've been here before for a long time. And at the bottom of the blue side, there's A, B, C, D, and a place where you can check it. Here, here it is up on the screen. So. And so, I want you to self identify where you're at with God because all of us, there's only four options. So all of us fits in one of these options, so you tell me where you're at. So we're going to use A. That stands for before today, before this service ever happened, you walked in here and you already believed in Jesus, but not just believed he existed. You already came to the understanding that you've sinned against God, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and Because of your trust in him, that's the only thing that saves you from separation from God forever. You know you've done that. And you can think back to a time when that happened and you should be able to acknowledge that since that time, your life has changed and you've grown closer to God. If that's all true of you, A. Check it. B is, hey, I... I believe in Jesus. I believe he is who he said he was. Don't know if I've done all that yet the way you said it, but I believe. The trouble is certain kinds of belief aren't enough. Put your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation as the only way to be saved from the just and right consequences of your personal sin. And if you're ready to do that now, I'm gonna lead you through a short prayer. Really, it's the belief, but it's good to tell God, right? Today, you can make this a reality in your life forever. Let's bow our heads, just something like this. Father God, I understand, Lord, that you created me, you know me, you care about me, you love me, and you know every wrong thing I've done. And Lord, I also understand that you're righteous, holy, and just. And you're saying that all wrongs have to be punished for there to be righteousness and justice and holiness. And so, God, I understand that I deserve separation from you in hell. That's the right punishment for my personal sins. But God, I also know that you you love me And even though this punishment sounds extreme to me, you allowed your son to come and bear that punishment on himself so that he pays it instead of me. Somebody has to pay either me or Jesus. And I'm putting all my trust in the fact that Jesus died for me. And God, I want to follow you. In Christ's name, amen. If that's you today, as far as you know for the first time, Mark B. If, if you're kind of not there, you're not A, and you're, you don't seem quite ready to go with B, because you're still kind of figuring things out, then you're considering it. Yeah, I got to think about this. Check C. Let me think about it. I'm considering. Or if you're here and you're just like, man, when are we out of here? <laughs> tired of this, I've heard all this before I don't want to believe in Jesus I don't buy the Jesus thing don't buy the Bible, don't buy any of this D, we appreciate your honesty we, would just, we just think it's important, I think it's important that you stop and think through exactly where do I stand with Jesus because you notice there what he said did we get to that where he said, verse 39, and Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And those of the Pharisees who were with them heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? And they're probably expecting Jesus to say, yeah, you are. But he, he says something profound and unexpected. He says, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Because they thought they had it figured out spiritually. But they missed Jesus. They're going to die in their sins. That's what he's saying. How about you? Most important decision.